Today I want to talk to you about something that's so simple it's genius. So simple it's genius. Um, I really like watching the dragons, Dan. <laughs> Just because I love to see the ideas that people come up with. <laughs> they have great ideas. And some of them are so simple, but they're genius. Like they're, you're thinking, oh, why didn't somebody think of that before now? Um, and this one is not from Dragon's Den, but uh, here's an example. You know, you got you, you got your pot. I, I like to drink my soup out of a mug. I'm a mug soup guy, and it's not easy to get the soup pan, the soup from the soup pan into the mug. And somebody came and made this thing up where you just add a sort of a thing to the outside of the pot, and it just, it's genius, right? <laughs> but it's simple. It's very simple. Um, you've probably also heard of the KISS principle. Uh, very crass, I apologize. Uh, keep it simple, stupid. Keep it simple, stupid. Now, I think that both of these expressions, so, so simple it's genius and keep it simple, stupid, uh, are, are kind of a reminder to us that just because something is simple, it isn't complex or sophisticated or elaborate or anything like that. It's, it's simple. It doesn't mean that it's not profound or it's not significant. Jesus said these words, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. How many people do we know who have not entered the kingdom of God because they think it is too simple-headed, too easy, too childish? The gospel of Jesus Christ is considered by many in our culture to be a simplistic crutch. But I'd like to say that it's genius in his simplicity. Because it's the gospel that has the power to change lives. The gospel, although simple and must be received as a child, has the power to transform a life. I want to give you the context of the passage that we're going to be looking at in Acts 17 today. I need to give you um, an idea of the place that Paul has arrived at at this point. It's Athens. The, the Athenians prided themselves kind of as the epicenter of progressive thought. Interestingly, and I, I think also kind of ironically, uh, it also was the center of a myriad number of gods <coughs> and all kinds of superstitious beliefs. Athens had been the home to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Sophocles. It was a university town. And in its golden years was on the cutting edge, really, of political thought, architectural design, cultural expression and thought. When, when Paul arrived, 
on his second missionary journey, pretty much by himself at this point, the others were going to catch up. The, the golden age of Athens had passed and kind of shifted more towards Corinth. And even beyond that, now that Rome was in charge of everything, when he arrived there, uh, the diversity of all of the religious and philosophical ideas was still very prevalent there. In fact, uh, our scripture states in, in Acts 17, verse 21, that <laughs> he puts it in parentheses, the writer Luke, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So they were thinkers. They spent a lot of time considering the big questions of life, the big ideas. It was a mosaic of worldviews. It was sort of the epicenter of that. And all of these ideas were sort of coexisting and sort of there was this tolerance for everyone to have their own ideas and just sort of to leave each other alone. And it was just full of all of these different kinds of ideas. When you think about it, it's a little bit like today. <laughs> we live in a mosaic. Um, I think we live in a cultural mosaic, which is a great thing. But I would like us to expand that idea to the fact that we also live in a, a mosaic of ideas and worldviews. And I think the thought of the day really is just tolerance and acceptance and that nobody would presume to have the truth. And that's kind of what it was like in Athens back in the day. So before I read the scripture, I want to just point out a few things that were some of the thinking that was going on in Athens uh, in this mosaic. The first one is, uh, is Judaism. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul, uh, as was his custom, would go to the synagogue and went to the synagogue in Athens. And uh, he would worship there and he would share there. And so there was, you know, that was a fairly uh, conventional religion that existed there in Athens. But besides that, as he wandered through the streets, we read in our passage today that he saw hundreds, if not thousands of objects of worship to pagan gods. There was a God for everything, God for fertility, a God of reason, a God for this, a God for that. I, I actually read that there, there, somebody said that there were 30,000 gods who, who, who had representation in Athens. And so there were objects of worship everywhere in the city. That's what we call pantheism, all right? Called pluralism, too. There's just all kinds of gods. And then, and then lastly, 
there were all kinds of philosophies in Athens. Now, these would be not so much religions, but schools of thought. Remember, this was Socrates, Plato's playground, Athens. And so we find all of this in this city of Athens. And the Apostle Paul uh, basically got there by, uh, by being sort of a getting out of another place, coming to Athens, and was waiting for his missionary team to join him and kind of get the idea that he was just doing the tourist thing. He was just kind of bopping around the town looking at Athens, you know, well-known city. And so he was looking at everything. But being the kind of guy he is, he was deeply convicted and uh, he really felt that he needed to share the gospel with Athens. And so that's where, that's sort of the context that I want you to be aware of. Now, as I read the passage today, I don't have it on the overhead because it's a little longer, but I would invite you, if, if you want to get a Bible in front of you or you have your Bible with you, to read along or just to listen. And I, and I, I want to encourage you to think about Paul's approach in speaking into this mosaic of worldviews, all of this thought. What was Paul's approach in doing this? I find it a very interesting study. So I'm reading from Acts 17, and I'll start at 16 and go through to, I think, 34 to the end. What was Paul's approach? So while Paul was waiting for them, that's the others that are coming, um, his missionary team in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. God-fearing Greeks are people that were not Jewish by ethnicity, but had chosen to become Jews, um, to follow the Judaism, if you like as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. So these philosophies, uh, it's kind of interesting. The Epicureans and the Stoics would be kind of like opposites. <laughs> Epicureans were, were into finding truth, if you will, in pleasure. And so they, you know, they basically considered that there wasn't anything beyond this world, and therefore you should enjoy everything that exists in this world. That was the Epicureans. The Stoics were the opposite. They believed that God was everywhere, but mostly in reason. So they really frowned on sort of getting emotional about anything. They were very reasoned in their thinking. So they were real people that were really committed to reason and not getting, you know, being kind of like, they were kind of like the Spocks, uh, you know, of, of, of uh, Athens. So here we have a group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. They began to dispute with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he says, to be, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Then they took him and, and brought him to a meeting of the 
Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> there, Ariopagus. How, how did you, you were prepared to say that before I opened my mouth. <laughs> Why is that, Charlie? The Areopagus. Thanks, buddy. Um, and they said, uh, may we know what this teaching, this new teaching, is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And then there's that quote, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So, I mean, they, they just wanted to know what the ideas were. And remember last week we talked about the Bereans. They wanted to know because they were seeking truth. These guys, not so much. These guys are more like, they just, if there's a thought out there, if there's a worldview, they need to know it because they're the experts on worldviews. Okay, a little different. Uh, verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. Charlie, maybe you should just say it when I open my mouth. <laughs> so, and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, and a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was... Dionysus, Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus. <laughs> Thanks for the interpretation. I feel like I'm at the UN. <laughs> Except my language is stupid. <laughs> and his is informed. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So what was his approach? What was his approach? Um, I want us to take a look at another passage that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And I'm sure as he wrote this, he was thinking of his experience in Athens. He writes this. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not... God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, 
God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We preach Christ crucified. That's what he wrote to the Corinthians, but isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul did in Athens? It says in 1718, we just read it, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. This is exactly what Paul made the centerpiece of his presentation as he's speaking into a mosaic of worldviews. He talks about Christ and the resurrection. You see, the simple gospel isn't just another competing, competing religion that needs to sort of be added to the list as if, oh, have you guys thought about this? That's not Paul's approach. He's not offering up another suggestion. He is saying that because of Christ and the fact that he rose from the grave, proving everything that he has said, proving that he had authority over life and death itself, that what he was presenting was the truth, the life, the way. It was singular, simple, but genius. It was singular, and it puts every other worldview in its place. The fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ attests to the uncompromised veracity of the gospel, the absolute truth. And this was Paul's agenda. This was his approach. Once again, it distinguished the gospel as the singular truth. And it put all other philosophies, religions, superstitions, schools of thought in their place, subject to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was Paul's approach. No holds barred. No question about it. This is the truth. And it puts everything in perspective. And so he is very, very clear when he teaches about who Christ is and the fact that he rose from the grave, it just endorses everything about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, though, and I think this is really important, particularly for us who, who are trying to minister in a mosaic of worldviews, he custom makes his presentation to who he's speaking to. 
For instance, even within this very chapter in Acts 17, when we studied his presentation in Thessalonica, we read there that he says, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue on, on the Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from their scriptures. So if you, if you heard, talk, talk about dexterity, if you heard Paul in the synagogue in Thessalonica presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel wouldn't be different, but his approach would be very different. He would have been teaching from the Hebrew scriptures. Well, look what Paul does in Athens. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And he points out that he has observed all of these places and objects of worship. The idolatry and the philosophy and the superstition, all of it. And that's where he starts. He doesn't start with them from Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures. That wouldn't make any sense. First of all, they've discounted it, and they probably think that those Jews that worship down in that synagogue are crazy. Right? They're the oddballs. Right? So he starts where they're at and customizes his presentation of the gospel, but he doesn't water the gospel down. He doesn't allow the culture to affect the message and the truth. And the truth is simply Christ crucified, and resurrected. So let's just go a little bit further because I want us to glean from this how we in our world can speak into this mosaic of worldviews in which we live in. So here's a few key points of, of speaking into the mosaic. The first thing is he affirms their thirst for the truth. He says, I see you're very religious. He doesn't speak down to them in a condescending way and sort of, come on, you guys are you guys are this or you guys are that. He doesn't browbeat them. He doesn't um, uh, make them feel lesser than. He connects with them. He affirms that they're truth seekers, that they're trying to figure it out. And, and you know what? Just as you and I sometimes have that feeling that we have doubts and, and we're just trying to figure it out, others who are from other worldviews in our world, and I'm not just talking about different religions, I'm talking about different philosophies. I was listening to... Uh, <laughs> I listen to the CBC a lot, like when I'm in my car, right? And uh, they had this interview with this guy on Tapestry, which is a great show, kind of gives you an idea of all the different worldviews that are out there. And this guy called in, and or actually he wrote a letter in to the people at CBC, and he says, would you like to know about what I follow, what I believe in? And this guy was an, Ang an ordained Anglican priest who was a Druid. Who said that? Yeah, Billy. He was a Druid, like a, which is a pagan. So this guy is a, an ordained Anglican priest who believes in praying to trees. 
And that's sort of thing. It's just crazy stuff. Like, and you know, it's actually seemingly a contradiction, right? I didn't get to hear the whole thing, but you can look it up. I'm sure it's live streamed or whatever they talk about. It's probably a blog. How's that? So there's all kinds of worldviews, and as we try to speak into it, if we come with this condescending attitude uh, that, you know, you guys are stupid and you don't know what you're doing, I, I think that's a real error. I, I think that, that we have to appreciate the humanity in all of us and the fact that each and every one of us, um, you know, has, has doubts and wants the truth. But we also have to be solidly confident that we have found the truth, as much as we sometimes doubt and struggle. The next thing I want to say is that when we're trying to reach out to a, a, a mosaic of worldviews, we, we have to sort of identify the need. Like, why, why do you need to hear what I'm about to tell you? And, and I think Paul does that brilliantly because he focuses on, in on this one, not an idol, it was actually like an altar to an unknown God. What a perfect place to go. He's, he's sort of pointing up the fact that they have, they don't know everything, and that there's some unknown God. And Paul says, I'm going to tell you who it is. <laughs> what a great way to go about it. So he's, he's appealing to their felt need that there isn't everything. They don't have it all figured out. There's, they've got an idol or a, an altar to an un, unknown God. And so that's where he starts. The next thing is so critical. And, and I think that sometimes we're so kind of bashful about this. But scripture is very clear about the identity of God. And particularly in Athens and in the 21st century that we live in, and in our mosaic in which we, we, we live and breathe and move, um, we need to be very clear, and Paul is very clear about God. And, and he says, first of all, there is one God. He is the creator of everything. In him we breathe and move and have our being. <laughs> he is not confined to a building. He's not relegated to some kind of stone or metal or wood idol. He's right there with you. And even your philosophers, even your um, great thinkers have suggested the same. And so, he's very clear about God. He's not a God confined to temples. First of all, he's a single God, and, and there are, you've got thousands of gods here. Secondly, he, he says that he's not confined to a building, that he is everywhere, and that he is supreme. And that's so important. What, I think that because we live in a mosaic, I think because we live in a pluralistic society, we so often feel a little intimidated about saying that there is one God and this is who he is. But that's clearly what scripture tells us and that's clearly Paul's approach. And then we have to clearly define who man is. 
And, and this is, Paul is really strong because all of that stuff that was out there, the, the philosophies of the Epicureans and the Stoics, the, the, relig, the religions of, of worshiping all of these pagan gods, the, the fact that they actually, with their own hands, created God in their own image, spoke to the fact that their image of God, of man was really inflated. As if they had the power to sculpt God into their image. And Paul said, nah, he's beyond what you can comprehend. You, you can't fit him into something like that. And, and when you think about it, that's a powerful message, isn't it? That you are not God. Nobody, you know, if you went out and challenged anybody and said, well, you think, you know, if, if you said, well, you're, you think you're God, they would say, I don't think I'm God. But the way we act today is that we are, we think we're God. We decide what truth is. Isn't that just for God to do? You know, if we determine what is truth, we think we're God. Or, or, or if we serve ourselves, we serve our needs, right? We, we put ourselves on a pedestal. Aren't we the idol? Aren't we the God? And so we have to be very clear about who God is and who we are. And, and, and yes, Christianity says that we are created in the image of God, but we are not God. We are created, and he is our God. And, and, and then Paul goes on, he's, he identifies the problem. He says, you see, the problem here is that you think you're God, and you, you think that you can create God. And so idolatry and creating God in our own image is the problem. Which, you know, in Athens... It was so clear because they were actually physical idols. But in our world, what are our idols that we've created? Right? Intellect. Right, Bill? Pleasure. Right? Um, affluence. <laughs> health. All sorts. Family. All of these things, you know, are, are bad. But when they, be, when they displace God... Their idols. And so we need to identify the problem, and then Paul says, here's the solution Christ and the resurrection. I, I've spoken about that. It puts everything else in perspective. Because if you believe that Jesus was God, come to earth, died for your sins, and rose from the grave, no other religion or worldview has that. You can search the world over. There is nothing like that. That is singularly Christian. That is entirely unique about our faith in Christianity. And, and any religion that claims that it's God overcame death I think puts everything else in perspective. And so 
the solution is Christ. And then finally he says, we have to explain, Paul explain what is needed. And he ends with, you need to repent. You need to repent of this idolatry. You need to give up on all of this stuff that you've created. And you need to submit to God. And you need to accept that God came and he died and he rose again. That's what you've got to believe. That's, that is the truth that puts everything else in perspective. It is a singular truth. Uh, Ray Stedman says this, Here in ancient Athens were all the classes of humanity that are still with us today. There were the religious oddballs, remote from and powerless to affect it. There were the thoughtless idolaters, sunken in superstition, living lives of quiet desperation, as do millions of people today. There were the atheistic existentialists who were priding themselves upon the rejection of all supernatural things and were focusing upon the present existent or pleasing themselves. And there were the self-sufficient fatalists who took pride in their ability to handle whatever comes and not allow too much emotion in doing so. You find it in different forms today what Paul encountered in Athens. But the gospel, even though it is simple, is genius and has the power to change lives. So just to conclude, how do we communicate the gospel into our modern mosaic? We live in a culture that is saturated with idolatry, whether it's self or money or pleasure. We, we live in a culture that is rife with competing philosophies, from hedonism to minimalism. We live in a, a relativistic or a culture of relativism, which is morally relative, whatever is good for you as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, which is philosophically relative, you think what you think, and if that's your truth, that's cool. We, we live in a culture that thirsts for new things. Did you notice that? The thirst for new things in Athens? Hey, this is something new. We want to know about it. It's the same in our world, right? We get bored so quickly. We need new experiences. We need, and, and everything keeps pushing the envelope because we need newness. And some of that newness is so far from God and his intentions for the world. We live in a world that condemns absolutes, that says, how in the world, or who the heck do you think you are saying that there is a singular truth? And we live in a world that scoffs at the concept of truth. They scoff at the idea that there is a singular truth. And so we live in an Athens. <laughs> we live in the same mosaic. It's just updated. And today's scripture calls us to a few things. One, it doesn't call us to hunker down or to isolate ourselves or remove ourselves from the mosaic. 
It says, as Paul did, we need to relevantly engage the culture in which we live. That means we can't engage the culture in which we live by being strangely out of touch with reality. You can't do that. You have to be in touch with what's going on. You have to know what's going on. What is going on? And find ways in which you can connect into that. So we have to engage relevantly with our culture. And then we have to be confident that we do have the truth. And we have to be very clear. And we can't be afraid that, that people will say, well, that's just simplistic. Because we know that if something is simple, doesn't mean that it's not profound. And we know that the simple gospel has transformed people's lives. I mean, we laid to rest Billy Graham this, just this week. And you think of the millions of people who had their lives transformed because he was unabashedly confident and in his presentations of the gospel. And people would say, oh, it's just so simple. But millions of lives were affected by his simple presentation of the gospel. He didn't try to tackle every philosophy, try to tackle every religion. He just stood up and he said, this is truth. You sort it out. <laughs> but this is truth. And we just have to be strong and be willing, like Athens, like Paul in Athens. I love the fact that, you know, here he is. He's just sort of like there, kind of, you would think, knowing, you know, knowing God, we know that it's not by chance, but we do think, you know, sometimes... You know, you end up in a certain place, but you don't see that as your object. It wasn't part of the plan. You, you just kind of get there. And it's easy in those situations to just sort of write them off as, well, I'm just kind of lay low. I'm going to kind of stay under the radar. I'm not going to make any waves here. But Paul couldn't do that. He was distressed. Are we distressed? Are you distressed? We should be distressed. We, we, we are walking around in a world where there are 30,000 idols. Where there, there are people gripped by fears and superstitions. Who are, are running after the next best thing. All the time. One philosophy to the next. Where, where, where there is no absolutes. Everything is relative. And, and that relativity just keeps getting pushed out and pushed out and pushed out further and further away from God. You, you should be distressed. I should be distressed about the condition of the culture in which we live. And that was the Apostle Paul. He just, you know, I just touring around Athens here, you know, and I'm deeply distressed. And he speaks up. And he speaks into that culture something that would seem very simplistic. Very simple. But it was Jesus. And some people changed their lives. They became followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage uh, from your word, which is truth and which is a lamp to our feet. I pray, Lord, that it would lead us into uh, a new place in our view of how we are to connect with our culture. Lord, help us not to hunker down and, and try to let it blow over and have no effect. Help us to be salt and light. Help us to be relevant. Help us to be willing to speak truth into the darkness. Because people need it. People need the Lord. Amen.